WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the lineup with Dave Prodan. I'm Dave Prodan. And we're here for episode three. Before we get to it, I just want to quickly say that the response we've had to the first two episodes has really been more than we expected. I don't really know how these charts work, but they are telling us that we are shockingly in the number one sports spot in a bunch of countries, including Portugal and South Africa, New Zealand and Uruguay, um, as well as high-ranking spots in the U.S., Brazil, and Australia. So a huge thank you for that. Um, it's bananas. It's, it's not what we expected. Um, and we're going to keep doing these. So they're going to drop every Friday. And if you haven't done already, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, on to episode three. In 2008, the documentary Busting Down the Door was released internationally. And this was a really big deal for us at the then ASP because our president at the time, Wayne Rabbit Bartholomew, was one of the five key figures alongside Peter Townend, Sean Thompson, Mark Richards, and Ian Cairns that were featured in this story documenting the origins of professional surfing. And it's essentially a story about stopping at nothing in realizing your dream. The dream in this case being the nascent framework of professional surfing. And they weren't alone in its creation as they were supported by a number of key people over the coming years. And in the cases where they weren't supported, they were actually led Women's surfing was not included in the 1976 Global Professional Surfing Footprint. That oversight was amended in 1977, and it's since grown to become a major player on the international scene with quality-based venues, pay quality, and a year-over-year -year quantum jump in performance. Women's surfing from 1977 to now, however, was not a walk in the park. It took grit, it took belief, it took passion, commitment from some really important people one of whom we're very privileged to speak with today. This is someone who was a competitor during the genesis phase of professional surfing. She was there during the 1977 inaugural season. She claimed the 1982 world title. She led, organized, and fought for the Women's Professional Surfers Organization. She was a 10-year surfers representative on the ASP board. And she was recently recognized as one of the WSL founders. Please enjoy the lineup's conversation with 1982 world champion and a key pillar in the foundation of women's surfing, Debbie Beecham. The good old clap, take one. That's right. How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did. I wanted to be world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? You can shut your fucking lips. 
And then I'll just say, put them up once, let's go. He's like, you look too pretty on the wave. Get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. Let's talk to your boxing. So Debbie, thank you for coming up. Oh, you're welcome. Um, I'm so excited we get to do this. And we actually got a bunch of the test cases out of the way before we we did this one. So oh, we kind of know what we're doing. <laughs> good, because I have no clue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, I think that that's part of the charm. But I'm going to just start with our recent interaction, because I think that's a kind of a fun story, um, because we've known each other for a few years, yeah. like via email and via um, the um, singular uh, being that is Meg Bernardo Meg. out of ASP North America, yeah. WSL North America. Yeah. But we, we reconnected recently because um, we honored you as one of the WSL founders up at the Surf Rancher event, the Freshwater Pro. And we, we got to do a couple of fun things, um, which we'll get into. But the, the funnest thing from my perspective was being able to give you your world title trophy, which you never received despite being 1982 world champion. That was such an amazing weekend, not to mention I got to ride the waves, but I knew I was getting honored as one of the founders, which in and of itself was huge. But when you guys pulled out that ginormous trophy, I I literally almost fell on the floor. That was so, it was really an amazing moment for me because if you can imagine, I never really thought about it. It was like something that just happened in 1982. MR and I won the world title, and we just went on our way. So nobody really gave us any um, trophies. or I think I got a little stained glass floral thing. And, uh, you know, 37 years later, I'm not thinking about that. It has no no real significant place in my, my brain. And so when you guys pulled that out, I was whew, just floored. It was so cool. Thank you. Well, and the, the night was fun too, because I know we have talked about it. I know I've talked to Meg about it for, for years at this point, but because surfing's history is largely kind of an oral history, mm-hmm. the night of, I had this panic attack right before we did it <laughs> because I'm like, I'm I am 99.9% sure that this story is true, <laughs> that she never received a trophy. But if Sophie Goldschmidt, our CEO, gets up there and asks you if you never received a trophy and you answer with, yes, I did, in front of everyone, I was going to get in a ton of trouble. So, oh, God, that would be bad. So I think I sense-checked you like in you the did. dinner line right before yeah, it happened. And I kind of got a little inkling of why would oh. he ask me that? You didn't blow it, but it was more I was, of a, I was as close to blowing <clears> it as it gets. It was, and it was so Im, Im, imminent. So it was like right before. <laughs> it was like, did you get a trophy? And I'm yeah. like, no, I never got a trophy. And you're yeah, like, cool, oh, I'll see you oh, in a minute. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you were like, okay. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, I was still stressed. Yeah, that was so cool of Meg because Meg has been fighting for the women to get, we, the few of us, like um, Kim Merrick, I know, doesn't <clears throat> also have one. All of us who only won one world title, there's only a few of us, but um, yeah, we never got any trophy. And so we'd been talking to Meg because some of the men who had never gotten a trophy had already gotten theirs and we're like, oh, maybe we could get one too. Yeah, for sure. Well, we're going to get into that, but maybe we'll just uh, wind the track back a little bit because I want to talk a little bit about your genesis as a surfer and how you got into it. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I was really lucky. My dad was in the Navy, so we traveled around. And I remember being in like Carmel and Monterey and near the water. But then we'd move inland, <clears throat> like to Virginia. And the the big story for me is that era of the 60s, I was, you know, I'm not saying I'm of a surfer of the 60s, but I was aware of the surfing because of the music and the show Gidget. And so it was so funny for me as a little kid, you know, I was thinking, wow, that that TV show looks really fun. So when we did move back to the coast, my I asked my dad, can we buy a surfboard? And I was just a little kid. And so we go try it out. And it happens to be in 1966, the world title came to San Diego. And I saw Duke Kahanamoku and got to see those tremendous international world surfers at a very young age. And so I was sort of inspired immediately to not only take up the sport, but then, you know, move forward with it and look at it internationally. It wasn't just I was exposed to my little group of people at the beach. It was I saw Joyce Hoffman and I saw Sharon Weber and I saw all my, my, of course, these are my women heroes, you know, at the time. But... Having had that experience really inspired me to go into surfing as at the time as only amateur surfing. Yeah, that's an interesting kind of confluence of events between Gidget landing and yeah. probably 
you know, enticing a lot of young women to be like, this looks really interesting. And also combined with having international stars come almost to your backyard. Right, right to my beach, right. Were there a lot of other young women that you knew taking it up at the time from the, either no, of those influences? No, gosh, no. Um, there was very few girls in the water when I started, um, literally like two or three. In fact, a funny story is my sister's name is Sherry. And my name's Debbie, obviously. And then there was another Debbie-Sherry combo that lived in Pacific Beach. And that happens to be Bethany Hamilton's mom. Oh, wow. Um, Sherry Hamilton. So we grew up surfing in PB at the pier, and uh, the Debbie-Sherry combos were probably the only real—there was a few other girls, of course, but, um, you know, there really was a handful, not not a lot. Yeah. So in terms of influences of, of how you progress from starting to getting good to getting good enough to compete, like, like how did that trajectory work for you? Well, in the U.S.—so it's so different everywhere around the world, but um, for us— there was this thing called the WSA, and it had four A's. And if you got to the end of the four A's, you'd reached your peak. Um, then you could be invited to things like the World Contest of 72. So I was able to go through all those things that made you available to go into the World Contest. And so once I was in the 72 event, that, that was still amateur surfing. In fact, that was uh, kind of, that was in San Diego as well. And um Wow, that's a whole nother podcast, that event. But that, again, was the beginning of the international aspect of surfing for me. And then we that was 72. So then pro surfing really didn't start for the mental 76. So there was a four-year hiatus where you still had to show up and do events. And there was um, every country had their own little group of event people. Like like in Hawaii, was the, the girls had a hui. And in California, we had WISA. And in Australia, they had another Australian uh, surfing group. There was pretty much mainly our three countries, well, Hawaii being the U.S., but... Its own sovereign surfing Yeah, in a, in a way, when you went to Hawaii, it wasn't like you were going to the U.S., you were going to Hawaii. It was really uh, the Mecca. Yeah. And so we had a lot of respect for that era um, and those people in Hawaii that were starting the tours. And so, yeah, that's how chronologically it came about. So, 72 from a world competition into hopes and dreams for a pro circuit. And we would just try to go to every event that ever offered any money anywhere. Yeah. And uh, not until 77 did Fred Randy and uh, Patty Panicha, who yep. was a very big player in the woman's side of the IPS, was they were, were able to start sanctioning events at the IPS in 77. Yeah. Before that, they were just a mishmash of events we all went to, as with the men as well. But it just didn't start to count as a world tour until 77. I mean, it is amazing because your genesis is sort of a, a developing and professional surfer kind of correlated with the sport, you know, in yeah. a lot of ways. And I think a lot of people that tune in and watch now – you know, they don't think about it that much, but it was really just this Wild West version of events all over the world, mm -hmm. you know, and they all come from different regions and different cultures, so they're treated differently. And then in 76 and 77 was the first kind of consistent rating system globally. Exactly. That, that was the genesis of international pro surfing as a rating system. And you have to remember... Those years, th there was no way to communicate. Everything was done by telephone. And so if there was going to be an event, you had a phone number to call. And I still have Randy Rarick's number on speed dial in my brain because <laughs> that's who you would call every morning before the event. But you wouldn't know even if there was an event. So Patty, who was the sort of women's arm of the IPS, mm -hmm. would uh, write these newsletters with Randy and Fred, of course, and then send out the information so we would know where to go and how to pay and get sanctioned. So the events would get sanctioned and the, the competitors had to be members. And it was a very rudimentary system. Like, you know, who was keeping score? You had to write the numbers down with a pen. There, there was no computer. You can't imagine. It's kind of like going to your local beach for a a little Menahuni contest and everybody's got little pads and, you know, they're talking to each other and writing numbers down. That's the judging was better than that, but the, the techniques were the same. Sure. And I mean, it's such a, e even today, I, I make this argument as much as people let me, which is it's probably the most consistently and most passionately watched subjectively scored sport on the planet, right? I mean, I know you've got a few that come in the Olympics every few years, but 
yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, you're comparing different interpretations of something that's subjective. And especially in the beginning, you're dealing with judges that come from different countries and might value different things. And mm-hmm. boards and equipment is changing so radically that, like, the the definition of what is state-of-the-art surfing must have changed so quickly at that's the start. That's such a good point. Um, I can recall um, Rel Sun was an amazing longboarder. And she would bring that style into her into her mid-length, we would call it now, but her boards were longer. And she would dance her way up to the nose. And we, the other girls, a little younger, would go, God, that's sort of old-fashioned. We're trying to hit the lip and go down the line and go for a barrel or something. Like, that was the, that was the big be-all, end-all. And so looking back at it, I'm like, geez, her beautiful style, you know, got underscored many times because that wasn't the judging criteria of the moment. Would it would it oscillate between events? Like, would she be kind of out of fashion at one stop, and then the next stop she's finishing second with almost the same approach? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it depends on who was judging. Sure. There was, you know, I have to say, at this point in time, the judging is so much more clearer, and you have um, certain things that you have to touch point on in order to move forward. And in those days, it was like, oh, why'd they give her a seven and me a five? You, you had no clue. And so, yeah, there was always a questionable moment as to, you know, and you also, even in those days, you had to recheck their tallying, the, the mathematic addition, because <laughs> a lot of times there was mistakes. So we'd always sit around waiting for the judges' sheets to come out and check them all and, and go. And that's how you would learn what they were judging on. You go, oh, that wave meant that. So there was no real formulative path to winning an event. It was like, unless you were Margot, who in most people's estimation at the time, I give her the most kudos because her her surfing style was just brilliant from such a young age. I mean, at age 13, she's longboarding like a pro. Mm. And, you know, then she took that into her Hawaiian surfing. And then her, she's sort of, she really excelled in a, in a Hawaiian style environment. I'd have to say when it came to, you know, crummy beach breaks, nobody really knew what was going to happen. It was always a, who knows. But um, yeah, the, so the, I guess the point was that there was, there were a lot of people who were able to find their way through those judging criteria. Do you remember in, and I know you competed before this, but the first year of the Women's Pro Tour in 1977, do you remember what kind of board you were riding? Well, I mostly remember the Hawaiian events, and I always rode a 7-6 Bill Barnfield, who is my favorite shaper, for Hawaii. And uh, yes, because we were riding the bigger waves at sunset, because at that time, so Fred Hemmings had an agenda, which is to bring money to the sport. He was very kind enough to include the women because nobody made him do that. Mm. But luckily, we could excel in large surf at the time. And so he would say, girls, if you can ride a 10-foot day at sunset, I'll, I'll put an event on for you. And so we would kind of go, okay. And we'd train and stay there, you know, the whole winter, riding our bigger boards, taking our quivers around from Hollywood to sunset. And as long as we could provide a show for him and the TV shows, the ABC and NBC sports shows for the weekend, um, once a year, we'd get invited back. So that sort of crafted your choice in surfboards. And at the time, there was really no one better than Bill uh, Barnfield for for a lot of the pros at the time. Sean Thompson was riding his boards. Bobby, uh, not Bobby, but uh, anyway, Margo and I and a number of other Pros were riding Bill's boards. So this is, if I'm looking at the dates correctly, um, sort of mid-70s, mid-70s mm-hmm. to late-70s. Was there ever for you another, I, I guess, interest or career path? Were you going to school? Did Was there any pressure to do anything? Because I'd imagine at the time, because this starts to be a recurring theme with a lot of surfers from that generation, it's a huge leap of faith to go like, well, I'm going to travel the world for this sport that barely exists and is sort of forming, and the money's not great, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, and there was that four years in between um, the amateur to the 77, for me, where I attempted to do that. I went to college in uh, Fort Lewis, which is in Durango, Colorado, 
really so random, but they have a really good ski mountain. So at the time, I was really into skiing as well. But um, immediately, as soon as 77 rolled around, 76 even, I left college to pursue the little tiny tour that was evolving. It was so teeny. And like the way you would go anywhere is you'd work all winter and then sell your car and then go fly to Brazil. You know, it was like there wasn't really a lot of money in the early, early years. Um, and you'd hope to win some prize money to, to make your way home. But <clears throat> as it turns out, you know, I was I was lucky I was married uh, in 79. So I had a very comfortable um, sort of living situation where I could, you know, have a home and go traveling. And that made it a lot easier for me. But it, it was still extremely difficult to just get the airfare. And then eventually I did get some sponsors to help. I would think that that situation is actually even harder to to make the leap because it's one thing if you're hanging out at the beach not doing a lot. It's another thing if you're at school inland. What, what were you studying and what – I mean, I, I just – I want to understand the mindset <laughs> of being like – I. I haven't been at the coast. I've been inland. I've been in academia. I've heard about this thing, and now I'm tempted to go try it. Like, how how did that work? Well, I stayed in touch even though I was inland. And, of course, I would come home, um, and I didn't really get that far in my college career, to be honest. I think I was still tied really tightly to the coast Mm. and the events going on, especially what WISA was doing, which was running a one-off event, the Hang 10 Pro, and then another series of events to to create a rating system. And like I said earlier, these these really important steps that were being done in the regional areas like WISA and the Hui for the, the Hawaiians did create those very beginning rating systems. And if we hadn't had those, so I remember not getting invited to an event because I'd been in college, and so I didn't get to go to the regional event. But I overcame that, and that's why I moved back, because I knew I had to to get back in. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you mentioned getting married in 79, so you were competing on tour first year in 77, and that... What was the first kind of experience with sponsorship for you in that era? Like, who were the people that were approaching you? What did that kind of look like? <laughs> I, I wish I could say this approaching This may be a short conversation, me. right? <laughs> well, there was never the approaching of me, but I was certainly approaching everybody. And I was very lucky I had what a real, local surf what, shop. What was your pitch when you'd approach people? Well, I, I guess um, that... I'm going to Australia, I'm going to Brazil, I'm going, it's always for a plane ticket. And I'm competing, and I'm from our town, from La Jolla. And so the La Jolla Surf Systems, a guy named Jeff Junkins, great guy, um, he was my first real, like, bought me a ticket. And that started my successful, you know, eventually I started to win events and um, was able to get Hang 10 on board. And so there was a few, you know, I had surfboards would come my way from certain shapers. So I think I had O'Neill as a as a wetsuit for many, many, many years. And I didn't really make a lot of money other than, you know, sell your car, go to the event, win enough to come home and do it all over again. And so the money was more like to help me get to the event. Um, the actual entry into the event was never too hard. That mm-hmm. was never that was never something I'd overcome. Right. But once I was on the road, and I remember Kim Merrick is always laughing because she was on the Hang 10 team. I think Joey Brand was on the, I know Joey Brand was on the team. So there would be Debbie and Joey, and then they brought in Kim, and then I won the world title. And she goes, then they dropped her. And she was like, it's all your fault. You won the world title, and then they dropped me. But I, I just laughed at that because they had, that had nothing to do with it, really. I don't know why they did, but she was such a tremendous surfer, and she went on to win the world title right after me. Yeah. So, um, and we were teammates for a while, so it was kind of fun. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, right? Because um, I think you and I mentioned it before, but even your growth as a surfer and a competitor between 77 and 82 seemed like it evolved quite a lot. Um, and you opened the 82 season with a win at Bells Beach. Tell us a little bit about that. Bells was just such a great place. I was lucky I was staying with 
the Barr family, Chris and Butch, and they are just so opening to their house for people in the surfing community. And so I was there with Rel, and, you know, it's freezing cold, as usual, rainy. I think there was, I don't know, four rounds. They always had an amazing system. That's the other thing about the early days. There was no set format, so people just created their own format. And I remember we couldn't use leashes either. Rod Brooks would go, no, no leashes. And so we'd be out in these, you know, eight-foot days. What was real quick, What was the reasoning behind no leashes? Just I have no sort idea. Of, um, I, you know, I, car, just, car crash sort of. He's like, I'm happy to watch. Yeah. And, and we were like, I can remember being on the beach. Jericho and I had lost our boards. We were both standing there going, oh, my God, we got to paddle back out. This is you know, during this heat. And anyway, it was it was uh, very physical, demanding, huge surf, and then little surf. So you'd go from this ginormous day to a little day, and it was whoever won actually really had to serve a lot of conditions by the time you were finished. And so it was truly one of the better events to win ever. And to, to get that bell, even at the time, the bell wasn't so, it wasn't as revered as it is today. Like, um, you know, you got a bell and it was cool. It was beautiful. Yeah. But now if you have a bell, it's like, wow, can I touch that bell? And you're yeah. not allowed to unless you've won. That's yeah. Rule. So it's kind of fun how they did that. I like that another takeaway from that story is that Rod Brooks is a sadist. But <laughs> most of us already knew that. You know Rod. Was that your first major win of your career? Yeah. 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 We only had five events a year, yeah. and I was in the years with Margot and Lynn. And so when you consider Margot and Lynn were a force, and most of our events were in Hawaii, two at a time. So a world champion would more than likely be a Hawaiian at the time. And so for me, you know, to win at Bells, a lot of it was, again, that those formats are tricky. I can remember going to Brazil, and one of the formats was the girls in the high tide heats, compared their scores to the girls at the low tide heat. So if you had a big bump in a in a heat and as a set came through, you got a seven, whereas the low tide girls only got threes and fours. So well, it was like a, leader, the a leaderboard thing yeah. where, yeah, you were challenged because the ocean keeps changing. Yeah, and but you're compared to a different heat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah. kind of complain. And these are the things that we did at the base level of the ASP yeah. when we started to really work when we've started to work with the event directors, we're like, we need to have a format that works that we know what we're going to get into. Would you consider yourself like a generational contemporary of Margot and Lynn, or do you mm -hmm. feel like you kind of fell a little bit after them? I was a contemporary for sure. We were all in the events together. And like I said, they were, you know, local Hawaiians. So they were pretty much, you know, that it, I think the, the score went like this. Margo would won, would win, and then Lynn would win. Margo would win, Lynn would win. It was it was back and forth. So, uh, yeah, and then I would be third <laughs> every time. But then in, in 82, that changed. Yeah, by 82, Margo was still competing, but she dropped off the tour. And then Lynn was still competing. In fact, the, there's a TV clip on YouTube of me winning my world title as Margo wins the event holding her baby, Shane, and Lynn's next to her. And I think I got fourth in the event, but I won the world title. And thank God for Al Hunt, because who would have known? You know, he had the way to make all those numbers work. And that was at Haleiwa. That was at Haleiwa, yeah. yeah, at a World Cup. How much crossover at that time did the women's tour have with the men's tour? Were there a lot of combined events? Did you Did you interact with the guys on tour a lot? We did. In fact, you know, we would sort of amortize the costs of putting up the scaffolding, and especially in Hawaii. And Randy and, and Fred did all that and create the judging panels. We just showed up. I was not really running events that were in Hawaii ever. I might have brought money to the events. I can remember bringing money to Fred and just going, here's our prize money for the event. <laughs> Strap the cash to yeah. your body as you fly over. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was a check. I, th the story goes like this. Um, and it was later in the season, I mean, in the years. It was, I think, in the 90s by then. There was no event sponsor, and so he was going to cancel it. And I'm like, no, no, I'll get somebody. So I call up New York. I got the limited who did this Forenza, F-O-R-E-N-Z-A. It means Florence. And then the guy put Jody Cooper out at sunset, pretty big day, in the clothing, and uh, sent me a check for, I don't know, whatever the minimum prize money was. And so the girls got to compete in that that year. I, I mean, that's how it was. It was like, there's no money, girls, sorry. Okay, I'll bring some. 
I'd be calling New York from Sunset Beach at 3 a.m. WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup. So 82 kind of brings us a little bit full circle from that opening uh, story about trophies. Um, so you're at Haleiwa. Al Hunt has, um, you know, ran his abacus and decided that you've won the 1982 world title. And is it just, there's not really a lot of fanfare around it? I mean, part of it too, I, I had a question about because this is also MR's fourth and last world title. Did that have an impact on it in the sense of like, the focus was a little bit on that narrative versus yours? Like, how, how did it play out on the beach? Or I guess just sort of at the end of the year? Well, there was two playouts. The On the beach day was very simplistic. The, the NBC cameras were there, which was, you know, an honor actually to be on the NBC, whatever it was called at the time, sports show. And then they announced that I was a world title uh, winner and that Margo was the winner of the event. So it was kind of a double winning moment. Mm. And that was fun and nice, but that was it. You know, it, was, it wasn't like there was a trophy given. And then later we had the IPS Awards, which usually was held at the Turtle Bay. And I recall this one was. Uh, in, in winter, kind of the same season. Yeah. As opposed to now where they we have it on oh, the Gold Oh, the same Coast. moment. And it was oh, right, called yeah. Kui Lima at the time. And so we'd go to the Kui Lima and they just gave us, I don't know, I can't remember. It was, I got a little stained glass piece of flowered glass to hang in my window, apparently. And um, I think, I don't know what MR got, but we, none of, neither one of us got a trophy. Right. And you have to remember, in 82, was a real transitional time in pro surfing. It's a, it's a good moment to reflect backwards. Um, that, that transition was because I think Fred and Randy were getting, you know, they'd come to a certain leg of their, of their work, and, and it was somewhat panned out already. And There'd been enough events from the Hawaiian, um, having the the trucks roll out from ABC, NBC, from town. And, you know, at a certain point, there wasn't really a lot more money or anywhere to go with it. Mm. And so they were they were in it for the professionalism, for the for the money of it. And yeah. which is, you know, an honorable thing. And and when there wasn't any money, they weren't there to just keep banging their head against the wall to help the surfers. It, uh, of course they were, but yeah. Their primary goal was to make it work financially. So when Ian came to the table with money to create the new ASP with the OP investment, we were all kind of tired. Everybody was tired. We're not tired, but we were, we were strapped. There wasn't really a rainbow or an umbrella sponsor that was going to take us over. Right. 
And the entire world tour was somewhat loosely held together. Yeah. And so when the ASP proposal came forward, by this time I was running the Women's Pro Surfing and I had all the girls, you know, we discussed it. Should we go with Ian? You know, should should we join the new thing called the Association of Surfing Professionals or should we just go our own way? You know, because there was a moment where we considered it. Right. Because, like I said, the other system was kind of broken mm. and the new path forward was unknown. Yeah. And I remember Margot and I had been in talks with Billie Jean King, who had um, just broken away and done her own tour. Sure. And Margot was friends of her because they lived on Kauai. She had, a, I don't know, a condo there. And um, Billie Jean would say, you guys, you got to get your own tour, get your own sponsors, build your uh, numbers up. You know, she was like, like she is, right? Like, so we would consider that. But then this kind of opportunity came with Ian. So we, knowing that we didn't really have a, a person of the caliber to run our own tour, we said, I said, Ian, I, I personally said, Ian, are you going to make sure that the women get a fair shake at this? Because we'll join in if you can promise me that it's, that you're going to try for us. And he said, yeah, of course. And of course Ian did. And so we said, yeah. So we joined in. You know, it was a vote. You had to, you know, opt in. And then once we did, you know, we were off and running. And and now, you know, many years later, the ASP WSL is sort of a blossom of what, what those early years were. Oh, I mean, it absolutely is a product of what happened then. I mean, it's such an interesting time you lay out, right? Because it's you're in surfing administration, which I want to get to in a minute. You win the world title. Um, you know, there's this really paradoxical situation for Randy and Fred, who created a system, and it almost worked. It worked well enough to elevate the surfers and the industry to then say, we're going to take it and do something else um, that they weren't prepared to develop or didn't have at the time. You move into this new system with the ASP. It just seems like a lot happening yeah. at the end of the year. And having, um, which I hold very near and dear to my heart, the uh, previous opportunities I've had to sit in a number of surfer votes, I actually think that's a whole other podcast series is just recapping how those things go down. W was it contentious when you guys sat in the room and talked about oh, the change? Oh, yeah. Well, for sure. There was, I think the contention was that people thought that OP was buying us out. And mm. a lot of, there was a lot of... Um, so there had been an, a number of industry sponsors who weren't happy about it. And, you know, if they were had team riders, those guys weren't happy. Not the women, per se, because we, we really didn't have a big game. Like, we didn't, we didn't come to the table with a lot of sponsorships. So when we came, we were just looking for a path to professional surfing, some more events. And whether that path was by the ASP sort of umbrellaed by OP or by Fred. Mm -hmm. We were okay, but who was going to who was going to be the 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 racehorse with the most gusto to get right. to the end point. And so our our choices weren't in the same vein as the men's, but right. the men's I I recall being in the room and there was a little bit of a, you know, the Aussies versus the Americans, but because Ian was Australian, he was he's a really good negotiator and he was able to talk to everybody and get um, everybody on board, and boom, just happened. It happened. Before we get into the administrative part, did your life change as a surfer and a competitor, you know, commercially back home as a function of winning the world title? Did you go home and did, you know, did you get more attention or your sponsors stoked? Like, what was it like or was it just... Oh, boy, that that is the, the, the humorous part of pro surfing. Is as a woman, I remember... To just first answer the question, not much changed. I, I came home and from Hawaii, and you know, it wasn't there wasn't any way to even tell people you'd won a world title. Right, you, right. You yeah, had, there's no social media. Yeah, there yeah. wasn't anything. In fact, there was uh, magazines were the only entryway to knowledge of what happened in the sport, and it was two months later. So in '82. I can remember having a local paper t write about it, and my sponsor was Hang Ten, and so they took out an ad in Surfer that said, "World Champion 
And uh, that was awesome. I mean, a guy named David Isaacs was my sponsor through Hang Ten, and he was just thrilled that I had won. It was it was very helpful for them and for me. And so that was about it. I don't think not much changed in my town or my you know my you know maybe my local friends surfing were very congratulatory, but you know it wasn't it wasn't a big deal. Didn't get any extra waves. No, yeah. nothing. The It sounds like you were already in a bit of a career transition, and maybe it was just a function of necessity in terms of being a representative or, or an administrator for women's surfing. Was that a conscious decision, or was it just, hey, you know, I kind of have to build my own path here because I am a competitor? And, and you ultimately transitioned into having a huge impact in that space. Well, yeah, just to go through that chronologically. So the WPS was founded uh, a couple years earlier than when I took it over. And those girls, uh, they were, it was in Hawaii, Rel, Jericho, um, Sherry Gross, people who really were trying hard to move forward in women's surfing, created this group called Women's Pro Surfing. And I was, I was also a part of the beginning, but I really got involved uh, by 81 when, like I said, the the steam had sort of dropped out of pro surfing. And because you can imagine 77, 78, 79, uh, there's no more money by 81. We were like, goodness, where, where are we going with this? Why do you think that is? Is it just because when it started in the 70s, it was new and fresh and never been seen in terms of a global tour? And people were like, well, yeah, this is cool. Let's let's get into this zeitgeist. And then it kind of took a breath before uh, exactly. it reset. Yeah. I have to say that I think that I felt like that. There was a huge... Um, sort of fanfare and people were excited and then five years goes by and it's like, okay, we've been seeing that event now or or not seeing it because some of it was in Japan or some of it was in Brazil. Right. And, there, and maybe the sponsors were realizing, well, I don't really need a bunch of kids in Brazil to see my banner on your surfboard because it doesn't do anything for me. So there was, there was just a, generally a reset mm. on... You know, the 70s to the early 80s, it's like, let's reset this. What is pro surfing? Yeah. And so that's why I took WPS, um, took it, brought it to California because it was a 501c3 in Hawaii, brought it to California, started to go crazy and look for sponsors. And I was lucky because I had a friend who was running women's pro ski racing. And her name's Jill Wing, an amazing um, person who lived in New York. So I'd go out there and we'd go knocking on doors for money for pro surfing. And um, I learned a lot about timing, funding, you know, the financial needs of, a, of an event sponsor at the time. So it was, I was really learning on the road yeah. and still running events, trying to get sponsors into the Hang 10 Pro Series bringing in Michelob, you know, trying to keep the balls in the in the air, juggling all these um, items. Not only, like you said, the fact that I'm trying to compete and I'm trying to bring the money to the event we're competing in. And so it was, it was a little bit of a Billie Jean King moment. And I kind of went, you know, she was doing that too. Sure. And there's a point where you can't do it. And so I just said, you know what, I'm, I'm done. I won my world title. I'm going to move on. And um, continue to work for surfing. So that was, was it a, a hard decision for you? Did you have kind of aspirations to continue? Or I, I'd imagine there's also the possibility that like, unless I build it, that previous pathway just doesn't exist. It, it was more of that. Yeah. The, I, I was reluctant to leave it, but at the same time, I'd been on the tour seven years. Yeah. And as you know, mm. we talked about this. Yeah. Being on that tour, you're traveling, you're you're penniless in my case. Same, um, my penniless. Try, <laughs> trying really hard to make ends meet and still have a great time. And I was lucky when I had a sponsor put me up in Japan or a sponsor put me up in Brazil or something, you know, where you weren't using your own money all the time. That's why I say when we when we did have an event, there was just enough money to put in the prize purse. It really wasn't enough. So at the time I went, you know, I'm I'm out of here. So I, it was not a big decision. You just didn't go to the next contest. It wasn't like you you had to tell anyone like right. today. Like, oh, you're leaving the tour. Wow, okay, here's a big farewell. It was more like, oh, she didn't come. Right. Well, and and I mean, you talked about the breath that kind of professional surfing or the surf industry or the kind of writ large took. But when you started hammering through in the mid-80s, that, that really was 
like a rocket train moment in surfing, 80s and 90s. That really reset what it, what it was in a big way. In a slow, bigger way. Okay. Um, you know, the 90s didn't really pan out that much more. I mean, this was a struggle too. Yeah. Um, Yes, we got a path. We had a slow train moving down a track, but it was really hard to get the gears rolling. And Not a rocket train, as I said, right. just a train train. And so we're on the train. Yeah. It's a good thing. But at the same time, you know, it was slow going. And, and a lot of the competitors, I remember, you know, like Rochelle and Rochelle Ballard, who, you know, people who were the, the face of pro surfing at the time, you know, for women, they they worked hard like I did. They came after me. I handed the baton over after. So I had my first child ninety and ninety one, and so I handed the baton back to the ASP. And I'm like, you know what? I'm off. I've got to retire. I have a baby, and so from eighty two to ninety one or whatever that is, something like that. I was at all the ASP meetings. I would go and fight for our rights in terms of having our events even on. Some people just didn't want to have us. Sure. And then making sure that we were able to build the prize money up from 3000 to 5000 to 7000 I mean, this is the whole purse. <laughs> and so we went, like in my years, it was three, and then it was five. And I can remember asking, uh, I, was, I think I sent that to you, where I said, hey, can we move it from five to 7500 And there, And one of the responses was, ah, the girls should just take what they can get. And it was like, oh, my God, we're, this was a constant battle. So if I didn't show up and ask, it would never happen. So those years for me, moving through to the early 90s is really slow because you have to remember it was the 80s. Like, come on, that nobody got money in sports, yeah. uh, men and women. So we were all pretty hard-pressed to just make money. And even the men's, I can remember being at a, <clears throat> one of the um, ASP meetings and somebody would say, well, why don't we give all that women's prize money over to the men's trialists? You know, we, we're traveling too and we never get any money. And I'm like, no, 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 we're bringing our own money, so don't right. try to take it. So that's what made me more inspired to bring our own money. It, it Was there an element of that that had you st stay in that role for that long? I mean, I mean, you yeah. could look back at that and say you might be the singular pillar that destroyed you take what you can get as an attitude or at least started <laughs> that because, you know, we can kind of flash forward to today and—, and if there's not a Debbie Beecham in that role, like we might not end up where we are. Well, certainly there was, I'm, I'm not going to say I was the only pillar because there's a lot of people working on it. But yeah, I was the only one in the room for sure. Um, and I would pay my own way to go to these meetings wherever they were. Hawaii, there were a lot in Huntington Beach. Um, but yeah, I would go and be the only one. So the room consisted of surfer reps and event reps and then the ASP board and so the the event reps were the ones who I was battling, or not battling, I was kind of charming. I was I, I always worked from the attitude like, you know, you'll you'll gain by having women serving at your event. Mm. But there were some events early on who felt, you know, only the Americans come and they take all the money. Why should I have this? I mean, those are quotes that I can say happened. And, you know, it's only because they didn't build up their their own juniors. You know, every country needed to do that. And so I think that that's really happened today. And that's a long exercise, too. Yes. You know, we, I was having a conversation with someone the other day about the state of surfing and, and where it was focused on the men's side with the dominance of Brazil. And, and they said, well, you know, if Italo or Felipe wins the world title this year, That'll be the third Brazilian title holder in since 2014 in six years. The previous four decades had none, you know, and, and they were saying, I think it might have been Mick Fanning, actually, and he was saying, look, like, it's going to take decades to reset some of these other powerhouses regionally. Mm -hmm. Because Brazil did the work, you mm -hmm. know? And I think I think it's really similar to what you're talking about, yeah. where it's like it was so new, and in a lot of places, too, there are cultural norms and gender barriers that had to break right. down as well before, you know, women even felt comfortable surfing right. in a lot of ways. And I have to give kudos to uh, the ISA because they are really, they have an amazing uh, equal gender uh, fulfillment requirement. So, um, and they're, they're really opening up frontiers for women surfing. So it's awesome. If you had to name two to three major battles that you 
felt like you bested or won um, during that window, that nine-year window of um, 82 to 91? What, what would those be? Well, I might have already mentioned that, you know, just keeping the women in the events. That was that was the hardest part because a lot of times they wanted to drop us. Japan wanted to drop us. Um, Australia wanted to drop us. An, an event here and there, not anyone in particular. But, boy, just having those conversations over and over and over and making sure that they kept us on and kept our tour. With two events on a tour, you don't really have a world champion. With three, you barely do. With five, you have one. You have a world champ. And if we didn't have at least five events on a tour, I felt that it, that was a failure. So my goal was to keep five events on a tour. And I think we were able to do that. And then then it increased. And um, thankfully, there was the ASP who was running events. But I remember the OP was going to drop the women right here in the California. Mm. You know, it's like I, I couldn't understand all of that other than – you know, they're a business and they're trying to make money. And so we would either help them do that by having an event for women or not. And so when they when they suggested that we were off, you know, we had to have more negotiation with that. So, yeah, there was that was the primary battle, keeping a tour. Yeah. And then the second battle is raising the prize money. Mm. And so when you guys here at WSL, I forget, five years ago— when you doubled the prize money, just one day, just like, well, that's not enough money for girls let's or women. Let's let's freaking double it. I about fell off my chair. I literally was so excited because that had been my sort of early life's work. And sure. then it was so easily done but the snap of a finger. Yes, although I'd probably argue the snap is tied to those decades, right? Which yeah. is you know, under the new management and ownership, it wasn't even just the prize money. It was also the commitment to quality venues at the same time, right? Which was um, the women are going to Fiji, the women are going to Trestles, we're shifting Biritz in the summer to Hoskor in the fall, and we're bringing Maui back. Like, right. I wouldn't argue one's more important than the other, but it's also like you kind of have to build it to see the performance and then to see the justification. And truly, that those primary years of the ASPWSL, when it was combined in that era, that was tremendous to watch because, like you said, women were suddenly um, surfing better. I can remember all the commentators were like, wow, the women have really gotten good. It was like, no, we were always pretty good. We just never had the venue to show it. Yeah, And I always, I always kind of get a little bit bristly about they have really improved. Like, you know, yeah, they never let us have good surf. I mean, they would intentionally throw us out there in the worst conditions. It was like, oh, it's getting bad. All right, throw the girls out. And we'll wait for the tide to get yeah. back up. Well, and that's and that's a little bit what you touched on before is like the surfing kind of becomes a product of its environment too. You mentioned how, you know, the women's tour in those early years was anchored around events like Sunset in Hawaii. And and I remember mm -hmm. a lot of the video footage and photos that we have of surfers from those eras, like really being impressive from like a quote unquote big wave riding Absolutely. standpoint. And then when I started um, 14 years ago, we didn't have those events. And when mm -hmm. they started coming back on, there was a learning curve for a lot of the surfers competing the for the world title right. because they just, that wasn't something they'd had in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, that's a good um, comparative event is the Hawaiian surfers like Margo Lynn or myself, Betty, some of us who really enjoyed big wave surfing. We had it. We we surfed sunset every day. It was that was normal for us. And if you were to hold an event in really good surf, we could perform. Mm -hmm. But and you put us out in really trashy surf, blown out burly. I don't know who looks pretty good in that, but it's tough, you know. So yeah, they suddenly had a better venue and it was on a camera and people were paying attention, yeah, that they could say we've improved. There's kind of a recurring narrative in professional surfing with surfers who either are currently competing like yourself or are transitioning into the next phase of their career of like, well, I kind of have to like do it myself, learn in the world, right? You were going out and almost getting a business education mm -hmm. and having to organize pro surfing. After you stepped away in 91, you went into producing films and, and a lot of other things. What, what was that era like for you? Oh, that was actually really fun. I mean, I was really happy to not have to compete because then you could, could put all your effort into the work, which for me was really exciting. Um, we 
I, I was approached by a producer out of New York um, to do a surf movie, and she had never even surfed. And I was like, okay, let's, um, maybe we'll go to Hawaii, maybe we'll go to Tavarua. I don't know, what, what can you afford? We'll take some pros. And she goes, okay, we'll start in Hawaii. Well, that was a disaster because nobody could get any waves. We had Sonny Miller. We had Don King. We had really great videographers. And so we realized, let's reset, and we went over to Tavarua. And we created a movie called Surfer Girl, and it was a documentary style. It was more of a, hey, let's take Wendy Botha, Frida Zamba, Jody Cooper, Pam Burridge, myself— Four world champions, and Jody, who should have been a world champ, you know, multiple seconds, is we're all surfing these beautiful waves, a powerhouse of women surfers. And then we would sit back and do interviews in the afternoon or, you know, at the hotel or something uh, nearby. And, and so the story of Surfer Girl really is about a reflection of the earlier years. So we shot this in about 90, 91 maybe, and... Um, we're looking back at the careers of Wendy and Frida and Pam and myself, and Jody, and and I can recall this one, this one question was like, "What do you? Why are you? What are you doing? And what do you want to get out of surfing?" And Jody's, her simple answer was just classic. It was like, "Well, I I don't know. I'd like to get a photo in the magazine," and it was like that's all you could really hope for, in those years, in those prior years, as because imagine there's really no money. Why are you doing this? Well, there's only surf magazines because there's no such thing as the internet and social media. Nobody knew anything. So the only way to know that you were somebody in the sport of surfing was to get a photo in a magazine. And so that simple statement just it just gives me the chills when I think about it. It's just so simple and meaningful at the same time. Did you stay close professionally to the organization or the sport of surfing through the late 90s or mid-aughties? What was what was that sort of path like for you? Well, I tried, but there really wasn't, um, you know, I would see Meg every now and then, Meg sure. Bernardo and her yeah. buds. And then um, I was busy raising a family. Yeah. I, I have two kids and a stepdaughter, and I was really full-on mom. You know, it's like you just enjoy it so much that I sort of, of course, still kept surfing, but I wasn't really paying attention to those 90s through the 2000s until, I mean, of course, I was always watching events if they were available to watch, but they were a little mishmashy from the production standpoint. And yeah, I would watch for sure. And I loved watching the men's rivalries. They were awesome. The Kelly... Andy years, cool stuff. Yeah. And then, you know, I'm using a word that's inappropriate, but reconnecting somewhat, but hopefully that will kind of pan out in a way that's substantive. Now, and, and with the production standards that are on tour and sort of the ease of access and being able to watch as a fan, you know, the current generation of female surfers, and like, what are your thoughts on that and just in general from having been where so you are? I am so stoked with it. I love it. I watch every event, um, you know, even if it's 2 a.m., you know, I'll try to watch somebody's heat. And I definitely watch every women's event. So it's exciting. I think you guys as a studio are tremendously um pushing the limits on things and really bringing cohesiveness so that it's fun to, you can really tell what's going to happen um, as far as, you know, setting up the time to watch. And uh, certainly there's a lot of layovers and waiting, but it doesn't matter. You, you know, there's a time period that those weeks are that event. And when there's not an event in the month, I'm, I'm like, oh, shoot, there's nothing to to watch, you know, what, when's the next event? So I'm really tuned in and I love it. And um, in fact, my kids are like, oh God, mom, you, you're so, like I'll have the TV casting from my phone or something. And they're like, oh geez, didn't we already see that? And it's like, they're, um, they're interested, but not like me. I'm kind of a fanatical fan. Well, and with someone like yourself who has such a high surf IQ because of what you've accomplished in your life, just as far as the surfers on tour go, is there anyone that's been particularly impressive from your standpoint over the last couple of years? Well, I have to say, I, you know, I've known Stephanie for a few years because she goes to Scorpion Bay where I have a house. And in fact, she stayed in our little retreat there for a while um, for, for an event. 
I mean, for a time. And uh, so, I, yeah, Steph is one of my favorites to watch for sure. Would but, you really quickly on that too? Because I thought of it when you were discussing Margot. Do you see any comparisons between Steph and Margot because of just how comprehensively she's able to surf all kinds mm-hmm. of conditions? And, mm-hmm. Yes and no. Yep. Um, there is, I saw more of Lane and Margot. Right, right. But because Lane would come to Scorpion too. Like Sean Collins would bring all the girls to Scorpion. <laughs> <laughs> and I was always there and there'd, there'd be these swells and the girls would show up and I'm like, yay, they're all here. We're all surfing together. But the the personality of Lane and Margot were more similar. Steph is so just easygoing. Mm. She's she's a she's an anomaly, I think, from a world champion mindset because She's easygoing. She's a hard competitor, but at the same time, she's not forceful over you. Like, I can remember thinking Margot would win at all costs, no matter what. She would just take it from you if she had to. Mm. And I was kind of shocked a couple times in a heat where she would just, like, blow me away and take the wave that was I'd been waiting for or whatever before priority existed. That must have been a fun time. It was, <laughs> yeah, it was It was a learning curve. And sure, she yeah. was the one who didn't care. She's just like, well, I don't know. She Marvin and I were best, best friends. She got married at my parents' backyard. You know, I've known her for my whole life, well, since we were 12 and or 13 maybe. Um, but at the same time, when Steph would come into the arena, you know, she's just, she's focused on herself and not about... Uh, all the riffraff around her, you know, trying to conquer someone. You know, she's just doing her best, and she's, oh, the style is amazing. Not just, say, Steph only, because I love to watch all the, the top five right now are all amazing. Lakey, Carissa, Caroline, um, Courtney, geez, all of them are just amazing to watch for me. And we have, a, like, a really interesting title race coming down on both sides, men's yeah. and women's, but on the women's side, you know, you have... Carissa looking for a fourth. You've got Lakey looking for a first. And if Carolyn wins, she would be the youngest world champ ever, men's or women. Yeah. So it's, do you have any thoughts about that? Oh, it's like, exciting. Yeah. We, I, you know, who knows? Yeah. I'm not, I'm, like you guys in the booth, I, I would never want to say who I think would win. I have no idea. Well, as a as a former competitor, which position would you want to be in Carissa's, Lakey's, or Carolyn's heading into Maui? Oh, Carissa, because... She's got that place so wired. I mean, I don't know. Car- I don't know really how big of surf Caroline has really um, been able to excel in. I, I have no idea. I've not seen her in those kind of conditions. But Carissa, come on, she's Hawaiian. She's like big waves, bring it on. And that I think is uh, something I really respect about a competitor is having that breadth that they can surf really crummy little waves, tube waves, tube riding, and then big waves. Because it's a it's a little scary out there, you know? I can remember days at sunset, just, whew, you know, looking down at the people below me look like little ants. And I'm <laughs> dropping in, but, you know, that's what you had to do. And so when they're out uh, Honolulu at that beautiful wave, oh my gosh, it's just really fun to watch. Yeah. And I, I think that even just this conversation, being able to have an overview of what you accomplished at the genesis of the sport and at the genesis of you as a surfer and a competitor and an administrator, everything you've done, like it doesn't happen without, um, I'd say people like you, but really you in a lot of ways. Like you're just a linchpin for women surfing in sport. I feel really lucky that I've been through this era um, and I can look back because I, it is very crystal clear to me all the things that have happened along the way. So just even now, when I watch an event, I'll go, oh, shoot, you know, if Flakey doesn't win this heat, she's not going to get to the Olympics. And then she didn't get to go to the Japanese event. And all of these little benchmarks that have to be touched on Nobody else gets. Like, I can remember talking to people, and they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, oh, this heat's really important, and nobody really knows that. So, yeah, um, yeah some of that some of that is just natural for me, but uh, most people have no idea that it's this whole other thing running below the surface. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I just think I just think back to uh, the night at the Freshwater when they were all able to come up on stage with oh, you and God. how, and how I'm, I know you said it felt special for you, but the, like, how psyched, all of them were being up there and and kind of buzzing having gotten to be up there with someone like yourself. Wow, I that to me I was more buzzed than any of them. Tell let me tell you, that was just 
a very nice moment in my in my professional career. So it was really cool. All right. Well, before we go, we have a lightning round of questions. Okay. So answer as quickly as you can, and we'll get through these. <laughs> if you can have one board set up for the rest of your life, single fin, twin fin, thruster, quad, bonzer, or finless, which would it be? I love a tri-fin. Coffee or tea? Definitely coffee. Burrito or pizza? Oh, burrito. Last book you read? Um, I'm reading right now uh, Blowout by Rachel Maddow. Best surf film ever? Probably Five Summer Stories. One wave you never have to go back to? Hmm. Well, I don't need to go back to Toto Santos on huge surf. I'm, I'm kind of done with the big, big wave stuff. If you only get to surf one wave for the rest of your life? Okay, but you can't tell anyone. <laughs> it's Scorpion Bay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we can flip those answers so people think that Scorpion Bay is you know, um, somewhere you don't want to go. Uh, best person to share a lineup with? Oh, my kids. Worst person to share a lineup with? Oh, Longboards that think they are newly, I don't know what to call them, but they're, there's a whole group of people that don't know the, the rules of the road. Uh, a, so, uh, I don't know. Not any person. But sure. Unfortunate symptom of a growing sport, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, finish this sentence. I will next achieve a state of happiness by... Getting home from traffic. <laughs> <laughs> Debbie Beecham, thank you for joining us on the lineup. <laughs> thank you, too. All right, so that's it. That is our conversation with Debbie Beecham. It was fantastic to talk to her. I hope everyone enjoyed it. As we mentioned earlier, if you haven't already listened to our previous two episodes with Peter Townen and Coco Ho, please check those out. We're going to be dropping these every Friday, so make sure you subscribe, make sure you tell your friends, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.